Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay. Hello, everybody. Hey, what's going on? This is Brad Listy. This is The Other People Show. I am in Los Angeles, California. It is nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. Today on the program, my guest is Julia May Jonas, author of the critically acclaimed debut novel, Vladimir. And there is a real sense of feeling your way through a character and letting that feeling and kind of the sense of where they hold themselves in their body and the kind of pace of their thoughts. You know, all of those things are, are things that I would practice in playwriting. Okay, that is Julia Mae Jonas, author of the debut novel Vladimir, which incidentally has nothing to do with Vladimir Putin. You will be relieved to learn. I think we've all had just about enough of him. Vladimir is a campus novel. It is a, a wonderfully voiced novel and a wonderfully intelligent novel. It is available now from Avid Reader Press, a remarkably assured debut, a gripping work of fiction. What can I say? My conversation with Julia Mae Jonas is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is made possible by Atria, publisher of the memoir Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives by Mary Laura Philpot, author of the best-selling I miss you when I blink. Mary Laura Philpot, hailed by the Washington Post as, quote, Nora Ephron, Irma Bombeck, Jean Kerr, and Lori Colwin, all rolled into one. She now returns with Bomb Shelter in her distinctive voice to explore, among other things, our protective instincts, the way we continue to grow up long after we're grown, and the limits, both tragic and hilarious, of the human body and mind. That is Bomb Shelter a poignant and powerful new memoir that tackles the big questions, life, death, existential dread, and it does it all with humor and hope. Glennon Doyle calls Bomb Shelter, quote, unforgettable, and Danny Shapiro calls it, quote, powerful and beautifully written. That's Bomb Shelter by Mary Laura Philpot, available now wherever books are sold from Atria. All right, so I do want to thank some people for pre-ordering my book. I have a new novel out in less than a month. It drops on May 10th. It is a work of autofiction. Is it a Kunstler roman? This word is now being bandied about. I don't know what it is. It's about me and my struggles. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. 
and again, it is due out on May 10th. One of the nicest things you could do for me or for any author is to pre-order the book. That helps. So if you have not pre-ordered the book and you have an inkling to do that, I would be greatly appreciative. You can do it at bradlisty.com. Just go to bradlisty.com. It's all right there. You can use whatever online bookseller you prefer. That's it. Pre-order the book. It'll be delivered as soon as the novel drops. I would like to thank Amy Kamatsasaki, John Chauvin, David Balser, and Vigil Patel for pre-ordering. Thank you so much, you guys. And other people's stickers should be in the mail if it has not arrived already. So as you may hear here, as you may hear here, there is a slight European air to the musical selection maybe even Parisian. I say this because I am just back from a trip to Europe with my daughter. I won't go on and on about this, but I need to confess to you, to announce to you, that I am pretty badly injured after a bike accident at the Palace of Versailles. I wish I had a better story. I wish it was epic. But the gist is that I was on a bike tour, a wonderful bike tour with my 11-year-old daughter. We were riding bikes on a guided tour and I ate shit on a grandma bike. I have no idea how it happened. I was not going fast. I don't think I was being reckless. I, I did take a selfie or two, but I mean, come on. I was going like five, 10 miles an hour on a wide open path, no cars, no traffic, no pedestrians, nothing. And I ate shit and broke my kneecap and possibly my wrist. What do you think about that? So I was in the hospital. I was getting x-rayed. I had to fly home with an immobilizer cast on my right leg. And I am podcasting right now before surgery. I think I'm going to have to have at least one surgery. We're not clear yet if my wrist is broken. It's sort of messed up, but I can kind of use my fingers. <laughs> but I can only stand on my left leg. So if you can imagine me right now in the home office here in Los Angeles, I am standing on my left leg, all of my weight is, you know, bearing down on my left leg and hip and my right leg is in a cast. And I'm going to try to continue. Nothing, nothing can stop me. <laughs> and I do feel an obligation both to you, the listener and to the authors whom I have interviewed to keep it rolling. So I'm going to try my best, but I am probably going to be in surgery this week. I have no idea how I'm going to feel afterwards. I tend to be pretty stubborn and to have a high pain tolerance. So we'll see. We'll see how tough I am, right? But I, I just feel old and dumb, and I felt terrible for my daughter. It was a wonderful trip, and I always wanted to take her uh, abroad for the first time. I wanted to show Paris to her. I wanted to be the one, you know, to show it to her for the first time. And I did that, and luckily this injury happened on our second-to-last day. I think it's our penultimate day of the trip. So... We really only lost one full day, but it was a bit dramatic. I was in the American hospital in Paris. I was, so, I was really embarrassed, you know? I fell and then I got up really quickly and I rode my bike for a while, just trying to shake it off. And it turns out I had fractured my kneecap, like split it in two, which is very painful as it turns out. And then I thought my wrist was just sort of jammed, but then it, it swelled up. It swelled up. You know what I mean. And then I was just holed up in a hotel, and then I had to get in a taxi. I can't bend my leg. 
that's the issue. So when you're in this situation with a broken kneecap, and especially once you get into the immobilizer cast, you can't flex your leg. So you can imagine me trying to get into like a, a Prius taxi cab in Paris <laughs> and also trying to fly home. They took no pity on me. It was one of these miserably full flights. There were no upgrades. It was just suck it up for 12 hours. And uh, I think I was in premium economy, so it was a little bit better, but you know, it was not ideal. And then I got home last night and I thought I was going to try to tough it out until nine o'clock at night to get myself back on rhythm. And I crashed into a blackout sleep at like 5 p.m., which I think is like 2 a.m. Paris time or something. And then I woke up at midnight and then I was up for most of the night just dicking around on my phone. And then I kind of fell asleep for another couple hours just before dawn. You know how that is. So I'm a little bit out of sorts. I have never broken a bone in my life. This is my first time. And I'm really not good at being injured. I'm a very active human. I'm already planning my next bike ride, like a redemption tour. <laughs> and it was such a good tour too. I'm going on too long about this. I'm sorry, but it's top of mind. I just want to let you know what's going on. If for some reason I cannot podcast, I will let you know via social media over at Twitter or on Instagram. But uh, we're going to have an episode today, I think right? Let's do this. This is such a good book. And I'm so delighted to have Julia May Jonas as my guest. Her debut novel, Vladimir, is out there now from Avid Reader Press. It has to be one of the best debuts of the year. If there's something better, I haven't seen it. And it is just a, a page turner, but also deeply literary. It balances that line. And I should say, kudos to Avid Reader Press. They're putting out books that do this very well, that sort of walk that line. So if you're a reader who likes those kinds of hybrids, or if you're a writer who's aiming for that sort of effect, Avid Reader might be a press for you. Julia May Jonas is a writer and a director and the founder of the theater company called Nellie Tinder, which you can find at nellytinder.org. And she teaches theater at Skidmore College. Uh, which we get into because her background in theater greatly informed the writing of this book, Vladimir, and helped her get into the voice and the mind of the protagonist in unique and interesting ways that will probably be of help to a lot of you out there who are writerly. So it was just a delight to talk with Julia May Jonas and to read her book. And I think we should get to the conversation because I got to get off my leg. I'm basically just balancing here like a fool. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So here we go. This is my conversation with Julia Mae Jonas, and her debut novel, One More Time, is called Vladimir. I'm in Pittsburgh, Brooklyn. I'm sitting at my kitchen table, looking at my kitchen, and then behind me is my bookcase. It's a great bookcase. Thank you. I, I can see what, like Franzen's Crossroads is uh, right behind your head. It's like over yes. your shoulder. That was recent. Did a you recent like it? read. It, it has, I thought... I mean, I always feel about Jonathan Franzen. I both like it, and then there's parts of it that I find, you know, clumsy. And then, but somehow I think about it all, for a long time. So, I listen. I'm a fan, and I, yeah. I feel like he's great, uh, mm-hmm. and maybe un, like maybe misunderstood is what I would say sometimes. Um, but he's yeah. certainly a serious novelist, and I think I liked. At first, I thought, "Oh, I don't like this one as much as I liked the corrections," but then I think it—I think it won me over. I think it won me over. I loved the Perry character. So I haven't much. read it. I haven't read it. I can't read anything oh. except for books by authors that are on this show because of just like <laughs> my time. So it's like, right. if I could get Jonathan, I mean, he's been on before, but I, I need to try to get him back. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe when they do the paperback, because uh, then I will have the opportunity to read it. But I want to read it. I like the cover. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good cover. It's a cover with a photo, which is similar to your book, which has a very alluring photo of a man in a green corduroy suit with no shirt mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk a little bit about that photo? So the photo was done by this artist, Molly Madelon, and then the whole cover was put together by Rodrigo Corral. And people ask me about the cover, but I... I only ever saw one cover. And then there was a video made by Simon and Schuster where they showed all the other options of covers. But I was only ever shown that that one particular one. It, wait, uh, wait, wait. Which... This, this is interesting that you were only shown one. Mm-hmm. Usually it's like, here's a few. What do you think? Right. I think they felt so strongly about this one that they wanted to see how I responded. And I think they wanted to see if I responded, ah, no, no, or... Uh, you know, so that, and then they could move from there potentially. I think they also just felt really strongly about the cover, but I loved it when I saw it. It's, I think it's, it's perfect. Yeah, I think it's perfect for the book, especially when you read the book and then you reflect on the cover. It, I think it adds more and more, it grows um, as you, I think, as you read the book. Yeah, I would agree. And I think too, it's like very uh, grabby, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a cover that you notice, which is, I think what you want. Yeah. And I think that it captures the essence of the book, which is also what I think that you want. Yeah. Um, and I think it's funny. That's what I think is. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a little great about it. What's the word? I mean, funny. Yeah. Or like, is there a word like gauche or like something about like a dude lounging like that in a green corduroy suit is funny. Yes, um, it is. But I also, I'm like looking at it. I'm like, and he's got like the gold chain. Mm-hmm. He's definitely got some confidence that I find admirable, or at least faux confidence. He also, I think the pose is quite classical, really, that he's that he's adopting, and potentially even like a classical female pose, yeah, uh, in a way that's often a pose you see you see women kind of in. And the gold jewelry, 
Like this is another yeah. thing. Like the gold chain sort of gone out of fashion, I feel like. But he's got a gold chain and a gold bracelet. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think he looks incredibly stylish. Yeah. He's a very cool man. <laughs> no, you have no idea. Like you're talking to somebody who has absolutely no idea how to dress himself. I have no innate sense of style. Everything that I get is picked up by looking out at the world. And so I'm incredibly impressionable. Like Mm -hmm. if I see something, I'm like, okay, this guy feels like he knows what he's doing. I remember Mm -hmm. going through a phase with Daniel Day-Lewis where everybody was like sort of celebrating his look or something. I don't know how I find this stuff, like in the way that one finds stuff on the internet. And Mm -hmm. I just feel like he always knows how to dress. Or, you know, maybe it was that movie. But anyway, I got into a phase where I was like, this is how it's done. This is who I should be. (laughs) (laughs) I think there are certain people who have a a sense of costuming, you know, that they they know that they can put together something that they can put out to the world as an interaction with what the looks are right now, potentially something that will surprise you. Yes, but like also will look like, of course, this is what they're wearing. Like it's this weird like hodgepodge of like, even it's like a hodgepodge of styles within a style, but somehow they pull it off and their body type is right for it or whatever. And they just kind of know what works. What I, and I realize we're on a bit of a tangent, but what I often ask myself is who makes these choices about what is trending? Like it's got to start somewhere. Where is ground zero for these trends? Because everyone's like, oh, you know skinny jeans are out. Now it's bell bottoms. Like, this is what mm-hmm. I'm hearing from my daughter. And I'm like, says who? Like, who's the per? <laughs> who's like, is it uh? what's the lady who runs Vogue? I'm totally blanking. Anna Wintour. Anna Wintour. I'm just picturing yeah. her in like some like, you know, like Manhattan high rise, like at her desk, just like wrapping her like fingernails on the desk being like, skinny jeans are over. <laughs> you know, like it's done. I, I did live in Greenpoint and Williamsburg, Brooklyn, a long, long time ago. And I felt like I was surrounded with people who were about seven steps ahead of any fashion trend who would simply, you know, I mean, they were artists or they were in fashion, but they would be able to look at something and say, oh, I remember this one woman saying, I'm so glad nobody's wearing boots over pants at this party. Um, <laughs> like the confidence of that just bewilders me. Like, like they, she knows. Yes. She knows. She knew. She knew it was over. Damn. Well, I just want to say that I feel like Vladimir is ahead of the curve. I feel the Vladimir that is mm. portrayed on the cover of your book. I feel like the shirtless with the green corduroy suit and gold chains look is imminent if it's not already here in Brooklyn. And uh, I want to get to the narrator of your book, who's really the star of the show. I mean, Vladimir is the cover boy, but the star of the show is the narrator that you've conjured. And I read that you felt like you were channeling her, which is all the, all the more remarkable because she's a 58 year old woman with significantly different life experience than you. Like you're kind of writing out of your range. You know, this is, this is a, an invented character in talk about this channeling. Well, I think, and I would say it kind of comes the idea of, of channeling her, I think comes from my background of being a playwright where you have to kind of get inside of some multiple people's voices at one time, you know, not everyone can be, you know, a person 
uh, who's like me. I mean, that would be that would be a very boring play. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to play about me either. <laughs> and a very unrealistic one. And so I think I have a bit of a practice of just exercising that sense of taking on other voices and trying them out and trying to figure out their patterns and their concerns. And there is a real sense of uh, having to of feeling your way through feeling your way through a character and letting letting that feeling and kind of the sense of where they hold themselves uh, in their body and uh, the kind of pace of their thoughts the you know all of those things are are things that I would practice in playwriting and they were they were something that I employed when I was writing her and and I mean mostly because I I didn't really feel like I knew how to write fiction I wrote it as as this long monologue. That's how I thought of it. Hmm. And there were kind of fictional things that I felt like I figured out along the way. And I'm a I'm a great reader of fiction, and I've I've tried to write uh, books before, but I always had kind of theatrical projects bringing me bringing me away, and so I never had a chance to really finish them. And and this because of the pandemic, I I actually got to finish because there was no theater. Interesting. And, and I knew it had a, I, and I knew it had a momentum, and I, I knew it was the right time for me to write a novel, as well. But, um, it, but it might not have happened had the pandemic not interceded. Probably, yeah, it's true. I mean, I had other things that were on the horizon that were that were planned. So because those got canceled, I was able to say, all right, well, nothing's happening. I can really spend the time and really work with this form, and and because of that, I had a. You know, I think unlike before when I had started, when I had written fiction, I had the patience to really work with the form because I had all the time in the world. I didn't have all the time in the world. I had a, I have a daughter and I recently had my son, but I, I, there was nothing, but because there was nothing else happening, I could devote myself to it in a, in a way that. I hadn't been able to do before when it always felt like, Oh, maybe I'll try and write a novel. Oh, would you like me to do a workshop? That's fine. I'll just put this to the side and I'll go do this workshop and I'll focus on this for a couple months. And then now coming back to this novel, mm, I don't know. I don't, I, it's not, I'm not feeling it in the same way, you know? So because that didn't happen, I think that was how I was able to kind of get inside of it. So that's a, that's a, a long winded answer, but that using that kind of technique or that skill uh, to channel the narrator and her voice and uh, put it forward was the place I started and then, you know, worked with worked with kind of thinking about how to write fiction and, and the pleasures of writing fiction, what I knew I felt like worked. Okay, so wait, I want to ask you something about being a playwright because you studied playwriting at Columbia, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so you're obviously a writer in that mode. Are you also a performer? Oh, I was when I was younger, but not anymore. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think everyone, you can't get into theater as a playwright. There's no ground floor of playwriting. You, you either get into theater because you were performing in plays or because you uh, were on the tech side or something like that. I don't think it seems like a job to be able to just write a play. But I, so I did go to undergraduate. I went for acting, but I quickly realized I did not want to act and and so transitioned to writing and making things what was it what was it about acting that you didn't like (sighs) 
Well, you're powerless. You can't do your work unless you're hired by somebody. You know, you can work on doing your work, but you can't actually practice a craft. That felt very frustrating to me. I realized that I wanted to be a boss, you know, and not an employee. And an actor is always an employee. Even when they're a big star, you know, you're still essentially an employee. And then also I felt like at the time that I didn't like all of the attendant things that came with being an actor. Just that the the way you had to hustle, the focus on appearance, all of these things that, you know, it's an, it's an unpleasant life. <laughs> and so I think unless you have a huge amount of conviction, then, then I, it's really not very appealing. And then also I just, I always had this love of literature. I always had a love of writing. I always had a love of craft. And so I didn't know what to do with that when I was going to be a performer. I thought it would just kind of live on the side. And then I realized, oh no, that was where, you know, my interest really was. Okay. So you conceive of this narrator who is unnamed mm-hmm. as a kind of monologue. That's the comparison that you're making creatively in your mind as you set, set about writing this novel. This is like a, mm-hmm. a monologue as would be given on the stage in a play where a character is sort of telling her story and making her case. Yeah. And structurally, you're moving in a scene-by-scene manner from chapter to chapter. Yeah, I mean, I did focus on something shifting by the end of each chapter because I, again, not kind of guessing at how to write fiction, I was like, well, I think it'll probably be compelling if something changes by the end of each chapter. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't so much that we necessarily had to be in a different place physically. We had to be in a different kind of space. Either she had something had to shift either emotionally or potentially with information, but ideally with some sort of action or, you know, or we had to have some new knowledge about her um, by the time we entered into the next chapter. I see. I like this, the way that these forms like are informing each other or how Mm -hmm. one is informing the creation of the other. And it's making me think like strangely in my memory, I'm going back to the movie American Beauty Mm -hmm. and Sam Mendes, who has a background as a theater director and that was his first film, which won all these, you know, I think it won the Oscar. But uh, I remember reading about the way that all like the staging and framing of the scenes or whatever was very reminiscent of the theater because that was his, that was his like area of expertise and like his background. So how else would you make a movie, you know, than, right. <laughs> other than to kind of frame each shot as if people were on a stage and it's all kind of contained in one, you know, one shot. But um, I think that it yields interesting creative choices and I think that it also has obviously yielded a narrator that is like really exquisitely voiced. Uh, This is a wonderful person to kind of go along for the ride with. Uh, Flawed, complicated, fascinating, probably has some blind spots, but like, I got to say, and this is kind of a confession, I loved her. I could hang with her. (laughs) She's not, I mean, you know, I couldn't hang with her in every situation, but I just think like there's something sort of honest and truthful in her presentation on the page that felt just great to me and maybe sort of, um, I don't know, medicinal or, or like, uh, like I just felt a sense of relief almost. Not because oh, I agree, not because I agreed with every single thing, but it was just such a pleasure to read somebody being this honest. 
was it a pleasure to write for those reasons? Yeah. And that's so interesting what you say about it being a relief because I was recently reminded of this because I was reading a kind of mid-level children's book with my daughter and all of the children in the children's book are so good and it is oppressive. It is oppressive how good they are. Yes. <laughs> and it feels unrealistic. And I watch my daughter who, you know, has breakdowns, who screams at me, who all of these things that are completely normal kid activity, but never show up in this literature. And I and I talked to her and I said, these kids aren't realistic, you know, that this is not how you shouldn't feel all this guilt and shame about being who you are because of reading something like this, because these kids are perfect. They are never sassy to their mother. They seem to only love their father. They're full of bravery and kindness. So, so, and I remembered that I would also find the literature of my youth, including things like Anne of Green Gables, Little Women, all that kind of, you know, all those, all those books about heroines, that are geared toward, I guess, you know, teenaged women in a way that I, I found them. I felt like I couldn't breathe when I was reading those books, although I loved them. I, you know, I remember just feeling like a huge amount of guilt and shame for having different kind of feelings because there was this kind of perfect world presented with these heroines. You know what I mean? I do. I do. I mean, I, I feel like I'm, I don't know, everything's gray to me and yeah. I don't get as a, I don't get as emotionally invested in the hot debate of the day as maybe some do. And I can sometimes feel deficient for that because I'm like, wow, everyone's got so, such strong feelings. Like why, why do I feel like nothing basically? Or why do I feel repelled? Like, I don't want to deal with this. Like, I don't want to, mm. you know, I don't want to weigh in. I'm not ready, mm -hmm. you know? And mm -hmm. maybe that's a flaw in my character that I lack moral clarity. Like I'm willing to consider that as a possibility, but I also sometimes think like, you know, maybe it's okay. Maybe the world is gray. Uh, and I feel like, you know, this character, she's got a lot going on. It's not just that she's raging against like the political moment of the day or the way that the ground has shifted beneath her feet over the course of her life and career. You know, she works and we should orient the listener a little bit. She works at a university and has been a tenured professor there along with her husband in the same department at a small expensive liberal uh, liberal arts college in upstate New York. Is that accurate? Right. That's right. Yes. Okay. So that's where they are. This is a campus novel and it's a novel about, I guess, an affair um, or an obsession, a romantic obsession that this narrator has for Vladimir Vladinsky, uh, mm -hmm. who is like the hot, young experimental novelist who's just been hired into the department. Yeah. that becomes the object of her lust. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> against, I would say also against the background that her husband is being investigated for past inappropriate relationships with students when the novel begins. Right, right, right. So he's being like, and this is like long after the fact. Like it's like, this isn't something that happened recently. They're almost 60. And now there is this like, you know, list of women uh, in the present day who are kind of retroactively accusing him of misbehavior and petitioning for the university to fire him basically. And right. what's interesting is that, uh, the narrator, his wife, they have an open marriage and have for the duration, 
is sort of uh, disgusted by the women who are making this case. She's not, I mean, she's got some, some anger at her husband, but I don't think it's directly because of that. It's for like other reasons almost. Right. Or, or maybe I think, so. Yeah, I know. I think that's true. I mean, I think she's in process with it. It's interesting. I, I had someone write me um, an interview question today saying, you know, your narrator is so objectionable. And I said, well, she, she thinks thoughts about things. <laughs> she certainly has moments where she's expressing moments of frustration at, at the women and thinking about them in terms of a certain view. And then I think she, but I think she's also in process with it over the course of the book. And, and I do think what I was interested in, in her is this idea that sometimes we think one thing and sometimes we think another thing and, and being in process with her thoughts. Sometimes we can, you know, cut down our students with a huge amount of, you know, with this satirical gaze and sometimes we 100% see why they're right. And usually we hold both of those ideas in our mind at the same time. That's right. That's right. That's what I love about it. And it's like, it's like reading the thoughts. Of, like, it's like reading, like your book is like reading the private thoughts of an intelligent, self-aware, flawed human being who isn't editing herself because of the thought of public consumption or how it's going to be received on social or whatever it is. Like this is the whole thing, which is why it's so satisfying. And, you know, you tie along, you, you tie to that the fact that it's about this particular subject matter and it's this particular kind of story. And I, th I just think it becomes really subversive and compelling. And there's also a lot of, like, obviously, there's a lot of gender considerations and the ways in which aging women are treated by society. And there's a lot of anger in this narrator. And I want to read you a line from the, uh, one of the New York Times reviews. Your book had got mm. multiple New York Times reviews, right? I know. As, yes, one, as one does. And uh, there's a line, and I'm, forgive me, I didn't write down who the, uh, the critic is, but I want to read it to you because it struck me as, as being really astute. Uh, maybe you disagree, but the, I thought it like really kind of captured something essential about this book and this narrator. Uh, so the critic says, quote, the vengeance of the narrator is directed specifically at her husband and more generally at a world that denies women, especially of a certain age, the ecstasy of transgression. Hmm. And I found that to be, that, that holds a lot of truth. And in, in so far as my perception of this narrator goes, we are seeing her in this story transgress purposefully in a multitude of ways. And like you say, she's in process with it. So she's sort of, processing her desire to transgress and the transgression itself in real time almost as it's happening. But does that resonate with you as, as, as holding some truth in terms of your intent? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of my intent, I think about the action when that she, that she takes, which is really, you know, other than her thoughts being slightly wild, I don't think she actually has any sort of, she doesn't do, she only does one small bad thing. Uh, I think I think people think of her as being kind of, you know, again, like morally reprehensible. But I think she's it's more that she's thinking through things for most of the book and then does one small bad thing, I think. And not to not to downplay her. I don't I don't want to get in trouble. But to me, she becomes, yes, entranced by the idea of potentially being able to transgress. 
in a way that she feels like she's never been allowed to do for her entire life. And that that moment where she where she transgresses, where she where she crosses that threshold from essentially basic you know, normal human behavior to uh, really subversive human behavior. It's, it's like a moment, you know, it's a moment where she does it. And I even, and the moment after she does it, she wishes she could take it back. And so, and so I do think it, but I think it is about uh, in that moment, there's a real seduction to for once doing something fully wrong. Right. Where did the book begin for you? Because there are obviously major plot twists and, you know, you obviously have the ending often in mind as a writer. Like once you know the ending, it becomes easier to do a novel, I think, because you're writing towards something. But I'm just curious to know like where it started for you. Yeah. I mean, it started as a, the, the initial impulse I wrote out as a, as a play, but it was a very different kind of play than the book was. It wasn't centered on this particular plot point. It was multiple characters kind of riffing on desire and it wasn't going to be a successful play. And I put it to the side. And then when the pandemic happened and I was thinking about writing prose, I, I kept thinking of that narrator had that the narrator of the book, she had stayed with me for a long time. I kept thinking about her. I kept thinking about how I could use her in something. And so I thought about, uh, writing that. And I did have an image an and a final image in my, in my mind, not the, not the very final image, but, um, kind of one, I would say like five sixths of the book through there's this image and I knew I had that in my head. And so I was kind of writing towards that image and seeing if we could, if I could get there. And can you, I guess you don't want to spoil, you don't want to talk about Oh, it's okay. No, it's, it's in the prologue. Um, she, so it's, it's this image of Vladimir Vladinsky tied up in this chair, zip tied to a chair. Right. (laughs) Which is how, yeah, that's the opening punch of this book. You're just like, Oh, okay. So I guess this is how it's going to be. Right. Right. And I want to talk a little bit uh, more, you know, we, we discussed your playwriting background and the work that you do in theater and your education in, you know, in theater and playwriting. And I was asking you about performing because I'm wondering with a novel that's as voicey as this one, if you got performative in the edit, you know, I know you re- I read somewhere that you were reading it aloud in the edit to kind of iron it out. And I think a lot of us do this. Um, I think I might even read aloud as I'm writing sometimes, but sometimes it's good to hear it. And I'm wondering with the novel that's like this voicey if, and, and with your background in playwriting is like, were you performing this in the edit? Like, did you need some room and and some quiet space so you could really get into character? (laughs) Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I read for flow and for repetitions mostly. So I didn't necessarily read for character because the character, I think I would have distracted myself because I'm not the right type for that character. Right. So if I had really acted it out, I think I would have, it actually would have been too distracting because uh, there would have been, I would have felt a self consciousness around it. So when I, when I think about acting it out, I mean, I'm one of those people that I can't really write in a coffee shop because I close my eyes and I type so that I can just be, inside of of the feeling of it so it's more about that kind of like really feeling the character 
that was how I stayed with her voice. And then when I was when I was reading it out loud, I you know that that was for a different kind of bunch of technical reasons. But I do think the performer thing that is connected is that the most entrancing thing about performing, and I think the reason why so many performers are, you know, so many people I know who are performers are the most intelligent people I know. Um, and I think people don't necessarily <laughs> understand that is because of what a high you get from being able to recognize and recreate emotion, the real specificity of emotion. You know what I mean? And I feel like that is where what I drew on, you know, in writing, in writing the character, that kind of trying to access what that specificity of an emotional state was or specificity of an interaction and how exactly you feel or one might feel in that interaction and how really insightful that can feel to access on a physical level. Yeah, that's well said. And I think that it goes back to, you know, just this idea of cross-pollination and using one media or one particular literary tradition and having it inform another and how useful it can be. You know, because mm -hmm. it gives you a, an, uh, like a, a unique angle. So many of us are kind of locked in this books channel, you know, and that's all we're really doing. That's all we're really bumping up against. And it's kind of inspiring me to read more plays and see more theater. And, and the moments that come at you that are usually the best are often ones that take you by surprise when you're writing. Where you think, you know, because your conscious brain when you're, you know, your conscious brain has to be responsible for the whole thing. And what I actually really liked about novel writing as opposed to playwriting is it was a lot more conscious it felt a lot less accidental than writing plays which really feel like they rely on you know kind of getting into a mode <laughs> and then hoping for magic to happen in a way whereas novels felt much more it felt much more like clay to me really something I could work with something I could look back at a paragraph and say okay I know how to fix this or or look at a you know a chapter and say okay I, I see this I can move this around this feels tactile in a way it felt like something really workable I could look at it it felt not technical but unlike a play which feels like kind of magic I mean plays are like magic tricks they're like jokes and in the same way that a comedian has to work out the perfect wording for a joke in front of an audience to see how it hits I mean play you can't edit a play until you're really working with it with actors in front of people with design elements it requires so much 360 kind of experience because it really is about timing and landing so being freed from all of that and being able to work with the thing on the page that I knew was the thing that was going to reach the reader you know it was a one-to-one -one transmission that was that was really exciting for me to work with and felt even though I felt like you know yes I was channeling this voice I was channeling this character I was I was trying to be I was surprised by her as I went along she did surprise me and say things, you know, that I wouldn't have been able to think with my conscious mind, but the process was a lot more conscious because we grow up reading books. They're, they're imprinted on us in a way that plays, even if you're a playwright, even if you spend so much time in theater, aren't. Yeah. And um, it's funny to hear you talk about the way that plays are edited. It makes total sense to me that you would have to have actors saying the lines and you would have to have like some audience feedback almost. But the question that arises is 
okay, so you're a playwright and you've written a play. You're editing that play even after maybe it goes up and you're getting feedback from the audience in the way that like a comedian would refine a set based on audience feedback. Be like, actually, you know what? This line worked better the last three nights. Like, let's change it. You do that sort of stuff as a playwright, like as you're going. Yeah, I mean, especially, you know, I remember Tony Kushner when he had this play at the public called The Intelligent Homosexuals Guide to the Scriptures, I believe is the short title. And I think it's actually, there's a longer title for it. He was writing during previews, which are happening in front of an audience, you know, huge rewrites for his actors every night. And, you know, every night they would have to kind of assimilate and then redo the material. He was rewriting scenes. You know, you're, you are kind of testing things out in that way. And then, and then by contrast, as the writer working on a novel, and it's like, if we're going to use this clay analogy, like it's like clay, you're able to kind of like look back the next day, read what you wrote and, and mess around with it and get it to where you as the, uh, like, I guess you as the first audience feel like it's clicking. Yeah. You can make it the way you like it in a way. And of course, I mean, you, as you know, then it gets fixed and you just have to accept it to a certain level. And it's, it's, you know, you have all those feelings when you go back over and you look at your text and you know, you can't change that much. You can change a little bit here and there, but you can't change. Yeah. But I feel like this book is, it's really well-written. I don't think you got much that you don't got anything to do. It's good. It's all good. You're <laughs> done. You. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's actually strange to be done because when you make theater, you're working until the last minute. And you're still working when you're watching it with an audience, you're thinking about it, even after you can't really change the script, you know, you're present in its presentation. It'd be like if every person who read my book, I sat next to while they read it, which, which would be excruciating. But yeah, but also like, I think about that, like being a, a playwright and you put a play up and you're sitting in the audience watching your play be performed and getting the audience feedback in real time. I'm thinking of how excruciating it would be if it's if it bombs and if there's just like silence when it's supposed to be funny and laughter when it's supposed to be serious and all the horrible things that can happen. But I'm also thinking of like what a wild emotional ride it must be to have a hit. That almost might be more disorienting to be sitting there and people are just howling and crying and uh, that's got to be gratifying, but also like maybe at a certain point, not healthy to be exposing yourself to that kind of like ego charge. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think, I think, you know, when you're a writer in general, the best time you're going to have is when you're working on the actual thing and all the rest of it, regardless of whether you have a big hit or you get a great review, it all feels kind of vaguely painful you know, not to be <laughs> overly dour about it, but it all feels kind of vaguely painful. And you just think, oh gosh, well, I just want to be back writing again, because that's the only place that I feel um, kind of centered or grounded. You know, it all, it all, you get, I feel, I had so much good press for this book. It was really very surprising. And, you know, for my plays, I've had Many, many mixed reviews, mostly mixed, not, not like this. This was very, you know, not something that I was used to. So wait, so does this cause you to think to yourself, well, shit, maybe I've been doing the wrong thing. Maybe I just need to focus on books. Well, yeah. I mean, of course, of course that, I mean, it makes me think that 
I should be doing this versus plays. I mean, and hopefully I will continue to do both. I, I think the bigger thing is that I found that I really fell in love with the form and, you know, felt like I felt a certain kind of empowerment with the form and a, a knowledge of the form that I didn't feel I haven't ever felt like with plays. Sometimes I like to joke to my husband that I feel like because I, I teach plays at a college playwriting is like I feel like a baseball manager who never was good enough to play in the major leagues but knows everything about the form when I'm talking about writing plays and there was something about writing a novel, which I was like, I am such a dumb, dumb doing this, but somehow I'm really able to get it to work. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> I'm thinking about just the extraordinary self-knowledge that this narrator has. Uh, there's a lot of emotional intelligence in this book. And it's also a narrator who is covering dicey terrain and doing so in a subversive way, like in this unfiltered, uncensored way so there's a there's a certain fun and glee i'm sure that goes along with writing that but it's also pretty easy to screw such a thing up especially in this day and age uh or at least that's how i'm imagining it were those thoughts on your mind it's kind of a big broad question but i can't i can't help uh as i think about the book to want to ask like, how did you do this like there's really uh, like such an incredible amount of imaginative power in your rendering of this narrator and and just the sophistication of it and the knowing the knowingness of it the the lived in quality of it that I found so impressive. Well, thank you. And I feel like one I just I really took I tried to take being afraid of what she was saying off the table. You know, because I felt like the minute I and I have read a bunch of novels recently or over the past couple of years where I feel like the the novelist is covering their ass and I don't like that. I don't it doesn't feel truthful to me. Right. And also that they are morally correct, which I'm extremely dubious of just as a as a general practice, you know, the the assumption of moral moral correctness from any one particular person is always very uh, dubious to me. Yes. I'm right <laughs> so, there with you. I'm right there with you. Like, I think this needs to be said, you know, and I think that uh, a lot of people feel this way, but I think there's some, there's almost a weird like shame or, or timidity or worry that can creep in when you start to think along these lines. I think it helped again that I, it was my first novel and that I was writing it in this total vacuum of the pandemic, you know, where I wasn't necessarily maybe interacting with people that much or that often, uh, you know, it felt really hermetic. It, in a way it felt like, I mean, it's just a word document, you know, what are you going to be <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> why, why, why so, build this thing into a monster, right? Right. Right. Why, why am I? And I think I also, you know, benefited from having no really idea. I didn't have an agent when I wrote it. Uh, I, I didn't have a, a fiction agent. I, I knew nothing about trying really like the steps to get it published other than my husband has written books, although he's, he's a crime writer. What's his so name? Let's give him different... a plug. Oh, it's Adam Sternberg. Okay. He wrote the blinds shovel ready. And so I'd seen him write. And the main thing I took from him is like, you have to write every day. 
you you know novel plays are bursts and novels are slogs you have to sit down you have to write and I really wanted to finish it I think that was another thing and so I just uh, I really kept going. I didn't, I, I also made a, a rule with myself that I wouldn't rewrite until I got to the end. And I don't know, I, I maybe broke that. I'm sure I broke that here and there. And I look back, especially on the prologue and it's very, very different from when I first started. So I'm sure I broke that in some way, but I, I really wanted to force myself to just go, go like a train not worry about it. And I had no idea that it would even ever be published. I mean, I was just trying to, I wanted to finish it. Okay. And I, I mean, I knew that it was, I knew that she was compelling. I knew that I had something and I basically, I knew I had a, that it was propulsive and I wanted to write something propulsive. I wanted to write someone who was good company. And I wanted to write a female particularly who was morally ambiguous because I feel you see, feel like you see that all the time with men Historically, with men, you see uh, male nader- narrators who are morally ambiguous. And I feel like either with, um, and I felt like there wasn't that, you know, space for ambiguity in, in many of the females that I encountered in literature. Okay. So let's, let's talk about that. I want to get to like the business side of it too, since this is your debut and, you know, you didn't have an agent when you were writing it. But I want to talk a little bit about the book's DNA. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll tell you what I what it evoked for me. Like from page one, I couldn't help but think of Nabokov and how it was kind of an inversion. It felt like a flip, like a clever flip in some ways of uh, of uh, Lolita. I don't know, just like not in a one for one way, but just like it evoked that, and it evoked a kind of um, you know coming at it from a from a female angle. Uh, it also felt like cheeverish in the same way, in the same kind of flipped way. Mm. Um, it felt, yeah, it felt like a, a book written by a woman, voiced by a woman, that was in some ways responding to all of those literary men, especially of like the 70s. I don't know, 60s and 70s. That's what it was evoking for me. Is that anywhere near the right range? And yeah, can you talk about I, other books that maybe inspired you, you know, to create this kind of story? Yeah, I mean, I, I was definitely interested in uh, Nabokov and, and he has his fingerprints all over there in many ways. Certainly Lolita, even more so, I think, Laughter in the Dark, which is much more of a kind of fable. It's like the fable version of Lolita, uh, which he wrote earlier. And that's a book that I, I really have always loved. And I just find just a total pleasure to read and is so entertaining. And, you know, I, I, I love and have always been fascinated by that, exactly as you say, that swath of 70s male writers, Updike, Roth, Cheever, well, maybe, I mean, Cheever in a certain way, but I think I was thinking particularly of Updike, Roth, and uh, Bello, who, you know, they're, the intensity of their gaze upon women and the way women kind of seem to... Well, I'm, I'm like nodding my head because I read... Um, God, why am I blanking on... I always blank on the name of it. Humboldt's Gift. I read Humboldt's yes. Gift during the pandemic at some point. 
because I have like these embarrassing blind spots in my reading life where I'm like, I have not read, I think I read The Hanging Man years ago, but I was like, I haven't read mm -hmm. enough Saul Bellow. Yeah. I was like, this book could not get published today. Right. And it won like the, like the National Book Award or something. And it was also like yeah. embarrassingly dated in its misogyny in some ways. I guess it's all filtered through a character, but I like, I just could, I really reacted to that book. I was like, whoa, you know, like, what is this? And yeah. I don't know. Is that, is that one of the books that you might've been responding to? I could imagine how a woman would read that today and be like, okay, let me, let me give you my <laughs> take on things. <laughs> yeah. I think I was thinking of that. I think I was thinking of, um, Herzog. I was thinking a lot for him. Similar kind of, uh, obsession with, uh, looking at, females uh, as as kind of objects and 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 catalysts and allow me to say that i i love all those writers and partly what i actually took from them too was just that sense of being really good company and feeling really cozy right. i think they, they are such cozy writers yeah. and i feel like jonathan franzen that's why he's also so you know does so well is he's just so cozy you just sit down with him and it feels like okay it feels like a afghan yeah. i think of words well, listen, I've, you know, I know there's space, there's space in the world for experimental writing and writing that is really like abrasive and challenging and uncomfortable. Uh, like, I don't want to try to like foreclose on the possibility of that. But, you know, for anybody who reads a lot, unless you're a very particular kind of person, those have to come in small doses, those kinds of super ultra challenging works. Like, I don't know anybody who sits around reading those all day long, every day for most of us, like we want to be told a good story. Mm -hmm. We want to engage with a narrator who's good company. And yeah. as writers, and I'm speaking, like I'm totally projecting my, my own failures here, but I'm like, I think it, for whatever reason can often be easy to forget those kinds of elemental concerns, like be good company, make the mm -hmm. book, as you say, cozy for the reader. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. why, why does that get lost so often? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, again, it's like, uh, well, I notice like impulses in myself, even as I'm starting on my my second novel to say, to do something different, to want to do something, you know, uh, to challenge myself in a certain way, or, or, you know, to correct on something. Um, so I think somehow times we just we we get in our heads about what the pleasures what the real pleasures of a novel can be but i wanted to be pleasurable you know that was that was certainly something i thought about and so i drew on you know a lot that i found pleasurable about specifically those 70s male writers but also you know she's she's very all over the place these days but so, but iris murdoch who i've always been a a, a big reader of her her books um are you know, they're full of food, they're full of people expressing really ridiculous opinions all of the time, you know, and they're, and her object is always to give the reader the space to react, which I think sometimes when people ask me, like, how, you know, do you feel like your narrator is morally redeemable? I'm like, I just don't feel like that plays any place inside of the book. I think morality is what happens in the space between you and the book. You know, you can decide for yourself. Yes. Uh, yes. Like, that. amen. Like, why do we have to, like, I think this is part of what I bristle at is like, why do the uh, writers, why do artists suddenly have this onus placed upon them to be the moral arbiter of all of their characters, like thoughts and behaviors and statements? Like, 
the whole thing, the whole point of the exercise is to try to create a work of art that the reader or the, you know, the consumer can be in dialogue with and can react against. You don't have to agree with everything that's said, but I feel like so often nowadays, it's like, you know, the author, too many authors indulge in this or get caught in this, uh, idea that they've got to be like morally right on the Mm -hmm. page and it flattens Mm -hmm. everything and makes it uninteresting and I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and it's always, I think the most tricky thing, I think what trips people up the most is ambiguity is whether they can't tell if something is right or not. Because I think obviously, you know, people love crime. There's no, there's no issue in people reading crime novels in which people, you know, and being inside of a murderer's head. That feels very simplistic. I think for people that doesn't disrupt people in the same way as if they're like, I kind of like her, but she's a little, but maybe I don't like this. And maybe I don't like this. And maybe I do like this. I'm confused, you know, and then it's like system overload or something where, where that, that is the thing that feels so hard to, handle is is a sense of ambiguity uh i want to talk to you since this is your you know your first novel and you described you working on it as kind of like i don't know it was you're working in the concentration that was afforded to you by the pandemic the way that we had this kind of enforced austerity um Mm -hmm. you know thrust upon us by this virus and then you also you know you're not represented you never published a book before didn't really know what would become of this but i'm going to give it a shot Mm-hmm. feel like I have something and then you get it close to the line or you get it over the line and you start to say, well, okay, I think it's time to, you know, see what I can do with it. And can you just talk about that part of the process? Like, what do you, what did you do once you had the manuscript and you needed an agent? Yeah. Well, again, I will say that because it wasn't a form that I, again, had worked with, I allowed myself to be kind of dumb about it. Like a 22 year old you know, you were so brave when you were 22, you can just Speak write for to yourself. and say, well, I mean, I think I was more brave in a certain way. And then about certainly about approaching maybe artistic directors of theaters or things when I was younger. And then I got more, you know, scared, deferential, nervous, all of those things sure. as I got older. Um, or feeling like, uh, I don't know, is it the right time or is this the right mode or something? But so I, I allowed myself and I think out of, you know, one, it had to do with faith in the book. I felt like the book was good. I've read a lot of books. Um, and I, and I felt like, I thought I have something here, you know, it, this is, this feels, I, I believe in it, I guess. Yeah. For lack it's, of a better it word. stands up. It can stand up next to the books that I've read. It stands up. Yes. And then I, uh, I used to share a workspace with a guy who was like a, a scout for Hollywood, a book scout for Hollywood. And so I wrote to him and was like, who are agents that I could send this to you? And can you give me a list? And I sent him the book because he's also um, used to be in publishing. And so he read it and was encouraging sent me a list of agents he said like these people you can use my name these people you can't i'm really giving you the nuts and bolts of this no Um, this is this is great i really just wrote them and then one person responded and said i'll read it and they did and then they they said can we have a conversation about it 
after the holidays, I, I like it. I want to, I want to represent it. And so then I wrote to all the other agents or a, a smaller list and said, you know, I'm having a meeting. Do you want to read this? And I felt like this big pressure because, you know, I was pregnant and my husband had lost his job. So I was like, I got to get this. This book has got to get sold. Right. Um, I am selling this book and I'm selling it before I have a baby. I, I, I think that I can. Um, and I think that it's ready. So, you know, amazingly, that that was met with kind of uh, people read the book. And then I had a couple more meetings and then signed with my agent. And then I said, I want to sell this soon. And she said, I think we can do that. And so then we did. And then we did, you know, within a month. OK, so, so. who's your agent? Uh, Anna Stein. OK, so Anna Stein represents it, takes it out with not like a lot of back and forth, like you were on an accelerated clock and you also felt good about it i'm sure you did a little noodling but like not not like i've heard stories where it's like you know we spent two years on it and oh know. yeah well when i signed and you know when i had my meeting with her i asked her what her process was with writers and she said i don't really give a lot of notes she said i i'll give a, a couple but i it's not i i'm not going to work with you on the book uh, and that appealed to me in my timeline. Yeah, <laughs> and so, great. <laughs> <laughs> and so she sent me a few notes. I think I, you know, that process took, you know, two weeks or something like that once we had signed with each other, you know, very short amount of time. And then she, and then she sent it out. And? And then uh, it was, you know, she's a very, uh, good agent, uh, who has, you know, gets her books read. So then we had 10 publishing houses who were interested in it. I, um, it was a 10 book, 10 house auction. Holy cow. Yeah. How exciting. <laughs> that was insane. What yeah. were, okay. So where are you, are you present for the auction? No, I'm hearing about it via email you know anna just sends me kind of updates okay okay as like, we're going along and there's no something... there's not like an auctioneer there's not like some guy like you know like people think of auctions they think of like the guy talking really fast but it's just basically uh, a big huge it's a series of calls basically it's a series of emails i think essentially calls or emails i think and i was kind of getting the updates as it goes along um the rounds they go you know i'm still not 100 percent clear how it works but it'd be like you know, this place is this opening offer. Okay, round two, they've dropped out. Now we've got this group. Round three, now we've got this group. What, what were your dopamine levels like when this was happening? Total paralysis and fear. I'm not, you know, particularly used to unbridled enthusiasm yeah. in general. Well, so. I mean, you spend so, this is the thing about writing. You spend all this time in your, like, hovel working on your book in isolation. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, you, you know, you go out with it and there's this kind of response. Like, that's the dream, right? I mean, all these publishers oh, yes. want to publish your book. That's fantastic. So fantastic. And I only felt like it felt okay because my playwriting career has been so glacial, like appreciative, but glacial. And so if it had been, again, if I had been 23, if I had not spent the last, you know, 15 years really working on writing and on craft, even if it wasn't on a novel, you know, on plays and struggling and trying to raise money and doing, you know, all sorts of, all sorts of day jobs and things like that. If I hadn't done that, I think it would have felt uh, really, really super bizarre. And not that it felt like, um, 
I was getting what I deserved either. That's not, that's not, that's not what I want to say. I just mean, I, I was able to be grounded about it because I'm old and I failed a lot. <laughs> there you go. Well said. But I mean, I think there is some humility that goes along with that, but there's also a sense of, uh, the victory maybe being more earned. Like you've done the work, you've taken your, you've taken your lumps and, you know, gone through the process. And, you know, as I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking about this, uh, playwriting work that you do and how glacial things can feel, I'm reflecting on reading either, I either read Eve Babbitt's recently or read about her recently mm -hmm. where she was talking about other tracks that her career, you know, and she, she just passed away. So she was talking about other tracks that her career had taken, uh, early on and how they were more glacial and difficult. Yeah. And then she started writing and like almost a, like writing for magazines like Rolling Stone. And that's where the prose first began to find a home. But mm -hmm. almost right away, things like started happening. And she yeah. said something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, like, you know, you should pay attention to, you know, when you do something, you don't have to tap dance for your supper or something. That's like usually a good sign right when things move and i don't i think some of us never have that experience but if you ever do you should probably pay attention <laughs> yes you know yeah yeah i think so i i certainly i certainly felt that way like okay well this is this is the form that feels right um but i i you know and i i will say that i felt that way about the writing too you know it felt like a different kind of pleasure and a different kind of facility and flexibility, I think. I want to ask you uh, about adaptation, uh, especially mm -hmm. since you have a background in playwriting. Like, have you ever considered taking Vladimir and adapting it for the stage? And I can see how there might be interest for a screen adaptation, whether it's like a limited series or a, or a film adaptation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in terms of going to the stage, I felt like writing Vladimir was such a uh, an airlift out of writing plays in a way that I I don't really have a huge desire to put it back on a stage. Also, because even though I say that it is a very long monologue, it it would be a very bad long monologue because it is too long and it requires. It requires all of her kind of going backs and forth and her history and her interiority and her opinions and all of that stuff. That's actually all needed to make the book work I was without just, it. Yeah, I was just yeah. going to say it's, this is a very like the beauty of this book or so much of the beauty of this book is, is the interiority of the narrator. Yeah. And that's not really actually theatrical. That was kind of the permission that um, I took knowing that I was writing fiction was that ability to get inside of her stories and her digressions. All of that stuff would get cut if you put it on the stage. And so it's not really good for the stage because the stage is not that the nuance I think uh, in plays comes from often from performances, which is why good performances can make or break plays, but it's, it's hard to have nuanced writing. You know, it tends to be, well, what I would say is like play, plays tend to be about subjects and novels tend to be about characters. And so that's where that kind of uh, split I, I I see. So so no so, Vlad so no Vladimir the musical. No Vlad the, no Vlad the musical. <laughs> but um yes, there's some circling of there's some circling of adapting something into a miniseries and I think if 
the TV is so fun and open these days in the ways that could it could be worked with. Right. Um, that I think there's ways and and you know film allows for a sense of interiority even as you're not registering that simply because so often you're looking through someone's gaze at something or there's an assumption you know you're there's an assumption that you're looking at someone in a certain way versus a certain way and you can be with them yeah you can get a sense of a, an inner life in ways that you can't in in a play so that that is interesting to me. is there an actor attached do we have an actor um, I think I'm not permitted to say just now. Uh-huh. So I'm right. There is an actor attached. Possibly. <laughs> Theoretically. We'll see. Has this actor won an Oscar? I don't think so. I don't know. Not I don't yet. know all the people that have won the Oscars. Maybe for Vladimir. Maybe this will be a, a film. Who knows? This could be the breakthrough. <laughs> um, well, I loved it. And I think like for a debut, it's astonishingly assured and i also loved the like listening to you talk about how when you finished it you were like confident in it yeah it's the way you should feel you do all that work hopefully you feel good about it but it's also nice to hear somebody just say that like yeah i thought it was ready i was confident in it like too too much self-effacing behavior among authors i think is what i'm saying sometimes it's good to just plainly state that you're confident in your work yeah well i hope that it doesn't come off as um you know insufferable but i did i do think there's something i mean you can't be so self-effacing because you can't then you would never finish anything you can't hate your writing so much that you can't get to the end of it you there has to be some part of it that keeps you going that you feel proud of do not let doubt reap what was sown in faith that's right that is see i did my homework this is something (laughs) that you said to yourself during the writing of the book right I did. I did that. Yes. That was like a inspirational quote that my daughter tacked on her wall. And, and I would, I saw it on her bedroom wall and I thought, wow, that's actually, that's actually, that's very profound. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I should take advice from my daughter more often. I'll take advice from my daughter's inspirational calendar. And, um, yeah, I think we talk ourselves out of our good ideas all of the time. I think that's human nature. And so with this, I felt like, I could talk my that it, there's an option. That option is always there to talk talk oneself out of something. Um, but maybe for this moment, I'm going to try and resist that and just see what happens. Because what's the worst that could happen? Well, I'm very glad you didn't talk yourself out of this one. It's a superb novel. It's a an astonishing debut. Um, would be a good book if it was your fifth book, or you know what I'm saying. It's just a terrific story. And congratulations to you. Uh, on all the success that you're having. I always ask writers this at the end of the conversation, but uh, you're working on another novel. You mentioned it a bit ago. Can you give us any hints as to what it's about or what you're dealing with? No. (laughs) Fair enough. I will not press. I understand that superstition or that desire not to talk about something before it's really formed. I'm very superstitious about that. I didn't tell anyone I was writing Vladimir until it was done. What will the cover be like? Can we at least get there? Do we have any idea if there's no? No clue. No, no clue. Perhaps, perhaps <laughs> another shirtless male in a different ensemble. We have no idea. I mean, idea. Could, that could be a good prompt. Just write a book for a shirtless male on the cover. Uh, you could, it could be like a collector set. You could just get a set of Julia May Jonas novels that are just nothing but shirtless males shirtless on men. the cover. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I have loved talking with you. I know you got to run, but uh, thank you for spending some time. Congratulations again, and best of luck with this mysterious new book. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. All right, you guys, there we have it. That is my conversation with Julia May Jonas. Her debut novel, again, is called Vladimir, available now from Avid Reader Press. You can find Julia on the internet. Her website is juliamayjonas.com. She is on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Julia underscore May underscore Jonas. You can also track her down on Instagram. One more time, the novel is called Vladimir. Highly recommended. Go get your copy now wherever books are sold. Available from Avid Reader Press. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? Every single episode of this show, almost 800 and counting, is available to you, the listener, for free. The entire archive is on the web, it's on Apple Podcasts, it's on Stitcher, it's on YouTube. It's all there if you want it, free of charge. So what I'm getting at is that this is a listener-supported show. If you like this program, if you listen and you get something from it in particular, I hope you'll consider supporting it. You can do that for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's Patreon, P A T. R-E-O-N dot com slash other P-P-L pod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. $1 a month, $3 a month, $5 a month, and so on up the chain. As you go up the chain or up the scale, you can get stuff. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a sticker, a book club subscription. I will wish you happy birthday. I will write you a postcard. Patreon.com slash other P-P-L pod. If you would like to pre-order my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, you can do that over at bradlisty.com. Once again, that book, my new novel, drops on May 10th, so less than a month away. Pre-order it if you are so inclined. I would be grateful. You can also sign up for my email newsletter. Did you know that I have one of those? You can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com, or bradlisty.com. Either one. Just look in the left sidebar, click on email newsletter. It's easy to sign up. It only goes out once a week. That's it. I'm not going to inundate you. I'm not going to bury you in emails. I just send out one email a week. I announce the new episode and I give you a list of like nine things or eight things in addition to the new episode that have caught my eye on the internet. It's pretty basic, but It's also, I think, useful, hopefully. It's writerly stuff and readerly stuff and things that are germane. So if you want to sign up for my email newsletter, it's free. Just go to bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you want to subscribe to the YouTube channel, the entire archive of this show is on YouTube. It's free. Go to YouTube if you're a YouTuber. Look for the podcast by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy. Click subscribe. It's free. If you want to get the Other People app, this podcast has its own official app. Search for it by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy. It's free. It's a good app. It's a nice way to listen. It's all right there. Otherwise, stay tuned. We'll see how I do with my injury. We'll see if I come back from surgery and I'm able to move around a little bit and get to the microphone and stand up for a little while on one leg. <laughs> if I'm not, I will have my crack social media director, Joseph Grantham, announce my status on social media and we'll just see how this thing goes but wish me luck i'm sorry i got injured i feel dumb i'm mad at myself i I'll, this should only last like a year or two i tend to uh be hard on myself i'm ne- maybe i'll never forgive myself for getting injured on a wonderful bike tour with my daughter we were having such a good time 
and then I screwed it up. So, I guess I gotta live with that, huh? Anyway, it's a memory. Thanks for listening. Hope you guys are doing well out there. I will be back, I hope, soon.